0: Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Hannah jaffi I'm Zoe Chase. Today is Tuesday, June 12th. Today on the show, we're going to take you backstage behind a major bank failure. This is the story of how a group of people tried to fix a problem, and in the process, they created a banking monster.
1: But first, we're going to do our Planet Money indicator with Jacob Goldstein. Hi, Jacob.
2: Today's Planet Money Indicator, 6.8. If the government of Spain wanted to go out and borrow money for 10 years today, it would have to pay 6.8% a year in interest. This is monstrously high. This is disastrously high. In fact, this is the highest the interest rate on 10-year Spanish bonds has been since Spain joined the euro.
1: And particularly notable because Spain just got a huge bailout.
2: Right. The bailout was actually supposed to do the exact opposite. Right. All along in the European debt crisis, the sort of key measure to keep an eye on is what are interest rates for governments to borrow. And when investors get nervous, those interest rates go up. Right. So after this huge bailout that happened over the weekend, Zoe, that you talked about on the indicator on Friday, if if the bailout is sort of working, if it's convincing people around the world that, okay, Spain's going to be okay, you would expect
0: these interest rates to be going down. Instead, they're going way up. And I talked about this bailout that Spain just got on Friday in the indicator on the show. And there was this massive bailouts, 100 billion euros, 125 billion dollars. That should be enough to stabilize things. But one person's bailout is another person's mountain of debt. And Spain already has a lot of debt. And so
2: just to be clear, we call these things bailouts, but they're actually loans, right? So what happened in this case over the weekend, the, the eurozone countries, they all got together and said, OK, Spain, we're going to loan you 100 billion euros and you're going to use that money to make sure your banks are OK. Right. But, you know, this isn't a bailout like here's a bunch of money. It's a bailout like here's a big loan. Oh, and by the way, Spain's already got a ton of debt.
0: Exactly. You had a bunch of loans before. Here's some more loans. And I think that part of the reason that Spain is having trouble borrowing money right now is that it's sort of unclear with all of these loans that are multiplying who's going to get paid back first. You might not want to lend Spain money if you don't know at what point you're going to be paid back. And that's something that they didn't really clarify when they did the bailout over the weekend. And in
2: particular, right now, today, the last couple of days... What people are speculating is that this bailout money from the other European countries, that's the money that's going to get paid back first, right? So if Spain already owes you money, all of a sudden now you've got to wait in line behind this new $100 billion that Spain's got to pay back. So, of course, that's going to make you reluctant to lend Spain more money.
1: Or to ask for 6.8 percent.
2: Exactly. I mean, what investors do when they get nervous about lending money, they demand higher interest rates. And that's exactly what we're seeing now with these Spanish bonds.
0: You'd think the eurozone would be good at doing bailouts by now. They're still working out the kinks.
1: (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Jacob.
0: Thanks, guys. Onto the show. And we're going to stay in Spain. And we're going to stay with Spain's troubled banking system. And we're going to revisit some of the reporting that Han has already done. There's some shows in our archive that are all about the peculiarities of the Spanish banking system. And so today on the show, we're actually going to be able to bring you some answers about what has gone wrong with Spain.
1: Right. So a year and a half ago, I went to Spain, and they were working on this very problem. They were trying to fix the problems in the Spanish banking system. And they had some interesting ideas about how to do it. And they had a particular man who was sort of supposed to be the savior of the Spanish banking system. You may remember him.
3: Angel. 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 I don't know how how to pronounce it in in, in English. we say here angel. Uh Angel. I mean, like Charlie's Angels.
1: (laughs) So Angel was working day and night on this plan to save the Spanish banks. And today we're going to do something we like doing, which is to revisit that show, which raised a question. Is this plan going to work? Today we're going to find out what happened. It did not work. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Thank you for listening. (laughs) No. So what happened behind the scenes is really weird. So what happened in Angel's office was that this group of men sort of inadvertently, while trying to save the Spanish banks, Created this monster bank that at the moment seems to have triggered this newest, latest crisis in the European economy.
0: And I've been doing some reading about Spain, trying to figure out exactly what is going wrong there. And Spain's situation is uniquely Spanish. No bailout is exactly like another. And Spain, unlike Greece, did not borrow way too much money and then spend it all really badly. The problem in Spain comes down to their banks, these bizarre banks that they have. So let's go to Cordoba.
1: Cordoba is a small old city. It's got beautiful narrow cobblestone streets and really gorgeous old buildings, and it also has a lot of banks. And actually lots of one particular bank, CajaSur. CajaSur ATMs seem to be like the Starbucks of Cordoba. Do you do you have a bank account with CajaSur? Sí, yes. Sí, sí. pensión you can spend hours asking people in Cordoba, do you have an account with Cajasur? And the answer will always be yes, unless you are asking a nun, in which case she will tell you her order has their finances with Cajasor. So there are a couple dozen savings banks like Cajasor across Spain, and they're this uniquely Spanish type of bank. They're called Cajas de Oros, and in English, literally translated into boxes of savings, savings boxes. They're small, very local very trusted. Savings banks that are based on a bizarre 15th century banking model that for the hundreds of years that they've been in existence seemed like the last thing that would cause a crisis.
4: The Cajas have been safe and boring. That has been the tradition until a few years back.
1: This is Luis Garricano, economist who teaches at the London School of Economics, and he had actually been teaching all day. When I talked to him, he was losing his voice, kept having to stop our conversation to sip his tea while we talked about what Cajas are, and then later about what went wrong. So first, what is a Caja?
4: It's not a cooperative bank. It's not a bank. It's a a foundation with a, a non-profit purpose, a non-profit organization, and what it does is it... Lends and uh, borrows and uh, accepts deposits. And it's usually pretty local, or it was historically very local. It was based on a local market in a city, and it would do good works in that city.
1: Even though they're ultra-local, Cajas nationally are a big deal in Spain. More than 50% of Spanish bank deposits are in Cajas. So this is basically the way a lot of people in Spain bank. But Hannah, I'm kind of confused. We're calling them banks, but he just said they're not for profit. Right. So they're a really weird kind of bank. I mean, the money that they make, they give back to the community. So they'll build community centers or they'll give grants. And then there's another big difference from banks, which is that they're not run by bankers. They have a board of directors. And the board of directors is made up of important people in town, not bankers, but politicians or local leaders.
4: The people who run these institutions don't need to be very smart. They just need to know their market. It's very much about you are the branch manager and you work in a very uh, 9-to-5 organization where everything is kind of slow and you know exactly uh, what uh, the restaurant owner, how he's doing, how many clients he has, and you know uh, the doctor and you know the family next door. You give mortgages, give little loans to the cafeteria or to the restaurant, and uh, take
3: deposits.
1: This is the way cajas have always operated all the way back to when they were founded. And generally, the way a caja got opened was that a local wealthy family or a local business would start one. There would be a board and the family or business would take seats on the board. And today, they'll still have some seats in the caja alongside A bunch of local politicians. And the way this works is, Luis says, in many cases, you know, there'll be someone who works in a local construction company or at the local flower shop, and they'll get elected to the town council, and then they'll get a seat on the board of the local caja. That's very common. Also?
4: There is a caja in the south of Spain. That was run by the Catholic Church, so all the people in the board and the managers, etc., were priests.
1: That caja in the south of Spain, it's caja sur, the Starbucks of Córdoba, the one that everyone in Córdoba has an account with. Did you know that caja Sor was run by priests? Sí. So, Caitlin, I went to Cajasor because Cajasor had become sort of the poster child of what went wrong with the Caja system. Just like dozens of Cajas in Spain, Cajasor worked incredibly well for 150 plus years and then suddenly didn't. It fell apart. And also, a bank run by priests just seemed a little weird.
3: No, normal, normal. Sí. sí. Sí, La gente se identificaba con la iglesia, sí.
1: Just as everyone I talked to had their deposits in Cajasor, no one I talked to thought it was weird that the priests ran a bank. At one point, I realized actually that I was asking people, didn't you think it was weird in this random plaza? And I realized that we are surrounded on four sides as I'm asking that question by churches. Are we in the middle of four churches here? Right, there's this one? That's that church. One, no. Most everyone in Cordoba is Catholic. The church is involved in every other part of people's lives, so it's not that surprising that they happen to run the bank, too. Why not the bank? Why not the bank? Didn't you just tell me they ran the bank into the ground? <laughs> well, only only after more than 100 years of running it <laughs> perfectly well. So the trouble with Cajasor and with a lot of the Cajas in Spain started 10 years ago, so far away from Cordoba and the priests. Something happened that ultimately transformed the Spanish Cajas. Spain joined the euro. And those investors who are now scared of what may happen to Spain, 10 years ago, they felt exactly the opposite. Luis Garricano, the Spanish economist with the T, says 10 years ago, the investors were excited for the many great things that may happen to Spain. They were eager to lend money to Spain and at very low rates.
4: Spain, at some point uh, during the euro run, had lower borrowing rates than Germany.
1: So the investors of the world thought that th- that Spain was a better bet than Germany.
4: At, at several points in the Euro run, incredibly enough, yes.
1: None of the priests from Cajasor would talk to me, Caitlin. I called, I showed up, I wrote letters... But I did talk to a close ally of the Cajasor president and several people who worked closely with the board, and they all said this was a really exciting time for Cajasor when Spain joined the Eurozone. And the priests at this time would call board meetings where everyone would exclaim about how fast the country was growing and how there was money to be made. And they started to wonder aloud, wouldn't it be nice to maybe expand outside of Cordoba? We could make some of that money and we could put it back into our community and all around the priests, you know, people seem to be making a lot of money in real estate. So they started to talk about building their own housing developments and then placing a Cajasor branch right in the middle of the new development. So all the people could come and get their mortgage loans right there. And over the next 10 years, that is what they did. Cajasor built developments along the coast, really far away from Cordoba. And more developments outside of Madrid, which is 250 miles away. They opened a travel agency. They invested in three construction companies. And the loans grew and grew and grew in size.
4: The way they expanded was by getting into giving loans for mortgages and for real estate promotions. And what you're using to give those loans is you're borrowing it from international banks or international markets in many cases.
1: Oh, so the they expansion. stopped. So they stopped using regular people's deposits in the banks to make their loans, and they started borrowing from from international markets.
4: Exactly. Like they, from who? They, who
1: were they borrowing from?
4: I would think you should picture a large German bank or a large insurance company. The Germans, definitely the Germans, and the largest creditors of of, of the Spanish financial system.
1: Sí, fondos de inversión, incluso también
4: algún fondo de americano.
1: Yes, largely German and British investment funds, pension funds, but also some American ones. This is Juan Ojeda in Cordoba. He worked with the Cajasor board for many years. But suddenly, from a traditional business of relying on small investors saving their small investments in the banks, we changed to suddenly working with companies that were making vast and spectacular amounts of money very quickly. De forma que, uh, and that de was a caja. jarring sensation. Cajas were set up to be small and local, to take deposits and make small loans. But now there was a new kind of money available. One Caja opened an airport in La Mancha? Don Quixote land. Right. Apparently it is still just as remote and empty as when Don Quixote was there, only now there is an airport in the middle of all those fields sitting, you know, 120 miles from Madrid. Another Caja opened a theme park, but mostly Caja's got deep, deep into lending for housing developments and resorts and commercial buildings. Here's Luis Garricano again, the T-man.
4: If you're doing something very small, you cannot make much damage. But once you are using such a governance structure to give loans in the hundreds of millions of euros, um, or in the billions in some cases, to real estate developments, for example, then suddenly you have an institution that doesn't fit at all this, this problem. And what you have is loans that are crazy. You have a, a village in the outskirts of Madrid with 60,000 units sold where nobody's going to live.
1: Those crazy loans were just sitting on the Cajas books, losing money. So the government of Spain developed a plan to fix this problem. And that is where we get to our Spanish banking savior
3: Angel. Angel. I mean, like, Charlie's angels. (laughs)
1: Angel, Angel Borges. And Angel is a small, energetic banking consultant who actually prefers to communicate while scribbling numbers and graphs on a piece of paper like he was writing angel really big letters as we were talking. And about six months ago, Angel got a call requesting that he please assist in saving the Spanish banking system, more specifically saving the Spanish cajas. And at this moment, the Spanish government thinks it has a pretty clever idea. There are some healthier Cajas and there are some sicker ones. So take the sick Cajas and combine them with the healthy ones. You average everything out, you have a less sick banking system.
2: And the Spanish government decided, we don't want to intervene. We don't want to tell each Caja who they should merge with, who they shouldn't merge with. So they just said to the entire world of Cajas, OK, guys, there needs to be way fewer of you. There are too many of you. So you guys got to merge. So now Cajas, go figure it out.
1: Enter Ángel and his paper and pen.
3: Okay. Um, one year ago, there were 46 saving banks in Spain. 46. From 46 to 12, you need to find combinations of these. So some of them were... So who's
1: going to get partnered with who?
3: Yes, that's it.
1: Anja works for a consulting company called Afi, and he had worked with a lot of the cajas before. So they hired him to facilitate this merger process. And you can imagine you're one of these local cajas. You're a politician or a local leader, or maybe you're a priest. And you and your family or your church, your colleagues, have been running that kaja in your town for more than a century. And now you're supposed to go out there and find new partners so the calls started coming in to Ángel from Caja presidents across Spain. At first, a little hesitant.
3: This Caja is, looks, looks nice to me. I mean, do you know them? Could you help me to get in contact with them? And I organized a, a meeting or whatever, and we would talk. First of all, we would talk without any type of commitment or anything like that. I mean, let's, let's know each other. To see whether there is some, we call here in Spain whether, a, whether there is a chem- chemistry, mm-hmm. chemistry between the, two. and and if there were some good, uh, good looks between between the two of them. We will go along. I mean, let's, let's work together and what would be a nice arrangement of what would be a...
1: So you're, you're like the man arranging marriages between Cajas. Something like that. <laughs> yes, yeah,
3: something like that.
1: Something like that.
3: So it was funny. It was funny, the process.
1: It was funny for a month, maybe two. There were good looks. There was chemistry. There were dreams. Ángel would arrange more meetings and it'd all be going well until inevitably someone at the table would ask the question...
3: Who is going to lead? Who is going to lead?
1: Who's going to be in charge?
3: Yes, who's going to be in charge? That was the main aspect for breaking up.
1: So, Angel got out his pen and paper and sat down with tons of data about what each caja was bringing to the table. And remember, these are not public companies, so there's not a lot of information out there about their value. He had to value them. And he'd look at the market share of each caja, their assets, the potential for growth, and he'd assign power. Caja A gets 20%, Caja B, 40%, Caja C, 40%.
3: I have to tell you that during the process, there was a lot of pressure from any of them. They were calling us, this guy was calling us, hey, guy, you are valuing me wrongly. I, I, I am worth more than 20%. This guy, I am valued more than 40. This guy, I am valued more than 40.
1: Ángel had to push aside the lobbying calls and just come to his own numbers. And when that was done, it seemed like the hardest part was behind him, right? He's figured out how the power is distributed. And now the Cajas know who's in charge.
0: And all they had to do was work out the details of their new union. So this is where you left us, Hanna. Ángel had come out with his plans for the Cajas to merge. The good would merge with the bad and take over the losses. And... He seems like a smart guy. And this seems like a plan that can work.
1: It did seem like that. But then just a few weeks ago,
0: this happened. Shares in troubled Spanish lender Bankia are trading down, oh, just 23 percent. meeting
2: to, to finalize the amount of money that Bankia is going to
0: seek from the Spanish. Yeah, the problem is Bankia is not alone. They also. Now it's Bankia. Who will it be next?
1: Zoe, Bankia, that is the largest caja in Spain. And just a few weeks ago, it failed. Now, Bankia didn't exist before Ángel started doing these mergers. Bankia is a merger of seven different cajas. So a couple of days ago, I called back Ángel Borges and asked him what happened. And he says, I had great marriages for these cajas. I had come up with great matches, but these cajas did not want to take my advice.
3: And many of them unwilling to merge with each other.
1: Angel told me that a lot of the heads of the Cajas, the priests and the businessmen and the politicians, were often just looking out for themselves. And he didn't have the power to tell them they had to merge with each other. He would just make recommendations. And he says, essentially, what went wrong with Bankia was that these were a bunch of Cajas just looking out for themselves. So here's what he says happened. He says he was working with Spain's second largest Caja, Caja Madrid. And Caja Madrid was in okay shape. Anja went out and found Caja Madrid, some great partners, five small banks that needed help. And he told Caja Madrid, all of you together, you with these five small banks, you have a great future. But all Caja Madrid seemed to care about was size. Anja says the leaders kept asking him, is this merger going to make us the biggest Caja? No, he would say, you'll be the second biggest, same as you are now.
3: So don't try to to be a winner against the other. Everybody has to win.
1: Remember, Angel would tell them, this is about the banking system as a whole, not just you and your Caja and your region. And he says, for a while, it seemed like it was all going to work. Caja Madrid went ahead and merged with the five small savings banks, just as Angel had recommended. But then they added another bank to the mix. And not just any bank, they added the third largest Caja in Spain, a bank that was doing terribly, had terrible real estate loans. But it would make them, all together as seven, the largest caja in Spain. And that enormous caja would be called Bankia.
0: So they just wanted to be the biggest bank. Is that like every bank's dream, to be the biggest?
1: Angel says they were obsessed about size. They were obsessed with becoming the largest caja and beating the number one caja, becoming the biggest and most powerful I tried to reach people at Bankia. I mean, all the people who were part of these negotiations with Ángel aren't there anymore, and nobody called me back who's currently in the leadership of Bankia. And Ángel says he made it really clear he was not supportive of this particular marriage.
3: I I wasn't asked whether I was in favor or not.
1: Ángel says if he had, he would have told them. He would have screamed, don't do it, terrible match.
3: Now, uh, a failure of that bank is not a failure of a normal bank. It's a failure of the biggest bank. That's not good. Then you may may end up putting the whole system at risk.
0: Oh, I've heard of this thing of putting the whole system at risk. Over here, we call it too big to fail. And that is exactly what has proven to be the case. So the Spanish government has had to rescue Bankia. And that made people nervous about all the other Spanish banks, right? But Spain can't rescue all their banks. They don't have the money. So they've had to ask for help. And we talked about that at the beginning of the show. Over the weekend, the European Union stepped in and did help. They have lent the Spanish banks $125 billion. And this was supposed to calm things down. But things are not calm. And the Spanish government may be the ones next in line for the next bailout.
1: Yeah, I'm Come Now says, like, looking back, They made a mistake. They never should have been so obsessed about mergers and marrying the good with the bad. He feels like they should have just taken the bad banks and let them fail like that would have been painful. It probably would have been painful for a while. But he thinks looking back, they may have been able to get through that without it bringing down the whole banking system. Of course, it was hard to know that back then because they didn't know the problems in Europe were going to go on for so long. But he says looking back,
0: it was probably a mistake. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. Please email us, planetmoney at npr.org. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. Download our Planet Money app. I'm Zoe Chase. I'm
1: Khan and Jaffi Thanks for listening.
4: Y suena bien, parece que nos hemos convencido, solo tenemos que perder velocidad, hace ya tiempo que no estamos divididos,
0: algo sobrado.